the great Chinese teacher and philosopher of the Tao, Chang Tzu. He once described an experience he had in these terms. He said, I awoke from dreaming that I was a butterfly. And then I wondered, am I a man who was just dreaming of being a butterfly? Or am I a butterfly dreaming of being a man? And I think it's a rather wonderful conundrum, in a sense, to evoke that kind of uncertainty about the way we define our experience, about the way we locate ourselves within it. To really penetrate below the appearance and the surface of things, one of the dimensions of our practice is really to explore the dimension of of not knowing, or we could say to, to learn the art of unknowing. What it is to abide in that condition of simply meeting our experience without assuming we already know it, without forming it into a construct. And if we reflect, we might perhaps be struck by how much it is that we don't know about that which is most important. Like, how did we come to be here? We might know a little bit about the biology and the chemistry involved in the sort of the recent bits about how we got here. But the larger sense of how this planet, this universe came to exist, how life could arise in the way that it did, or has, it seems, this is kind of mysterious to us. This is kind of something we can't really penetrate with our mind. We could say it's a mystery. And what we can also notice is that as human beings we tend to try and find explanations. And of course the classic explanation, at least within Western um, thinking, or belief maybe, rather than thinking, in the religious sort of orientation is, you know, the idea that there's some remarkably powerful being who uh, made all of this out of nothing. And it's kind of like, wow, that's impressive. Yeah, okay. Some people find that a little hard to quite believe in. And so there's another version that is more the scientific version of how it all got here, which was that there was absolutely nothing. And then in a big flash, the nothing suddenly became something. It's called the Big Bang. Seems a lot more logical than God, really. Except when you think about it like that, it seems to me it's actually saying much the same thing. And neither of those explanations really actually answer the question that might be there for us. Well, well how did we come to be here? Explanations are fundamentally limited in these terms. And if we allow ourselves to open this, to this, if we allow ourselves to be touched by the fact that even the fact of our existence is mysterious, is remarkable, is inexplicable, and, you know, for the fact that it's happening at all, when 
it seems it could equally, just as equally not have happened, this existence. When one contemplates this, it seems to me that it brings a very useful kind of humility. Not in a putting oneself down sort of way, but more in a humbling or a acknowledging that intellectually we can't really encompass the vastness of life. Our mind is an expression within this life, but it cannot encompass it any more than we can with our cupped hands encompass the ocean. And interestingly, with that quality of humility, of just acknowledging, oh gosh, yeah, we don't know necessarily exactly what we're here for. Since we don't even know how we got here, to assume we know why we got here, that would be a bit of a leap as well. And so there's a humility, but what it also brings with it is a, is a natural sense of curiosity, I think, a natural sense of interest, and perhaps also a sense of possibility. When we think we know the way the world is, it tends to narrow things down. When we think we know what it means to be alive, it tends to limit the field of possibility. And more so than that, it has the effect of suggesting that we don't really need to pay that careful attention because we already know what's going on and how it works. So why pay attention? Part of how this practice works is asking ourselves to meet our experience afresh as if we did not already know what it was, what it might mean to us, what it might offer to us, and to be open to seeing what that might be. And when we're not quite sure about what's going on, when we're not quite sure, we naturally pay attention. We naturally pay attention. I was teaching in Sweden a year ago, um, just under a year ago now, and uh, the retreat's held on a little island, um, which is sort of connected by bridges to more islands and to the, to the mainland, so it's not sort of out in the middle of the ocean, but it's still an island, and quite a beautiful place, and in the spring when my wife Catherine and I go to teach there most years, um, it's quite often quite warm, quite lovely, so I'd enjoy walking barefoot in the grass, and I was rather excited to hear that someone had seen a snake in the grass. We don't have snakes where I come from, and it's kind of fascinating creatures. Wow. So I noticed when I was walking in the grass, and I didn't know exactly where the snake was. I wanted to go and see it, and I knew it was down in this area, but I didn't know exactly where it was, that suddenly I didn't have to think very hard or make a lot of effort to be mindful. Like I was really mindful because I didn't know what I was going to find. I didn't know what was going to happen. And there's a way in which our kind of assumption that we know what's going on, we know what it is to take a step upon the earth, takes away from us or distances ourselves, distances us from the possibility of something very fresh, something very immediate, something very powerful and penetrative touching us in the way that it can when we're really open. When we don't assume we already know what's going on. And 
It's interesting how, despite the fact that there may be some, we might recognize or acknowledge in some way, yeah, I can see, that makes some sense, that resonates with me, that we can, at the same time, orient very strongly towards wanting to know what we're doing, what's going to happen, what's the best way to do it, as if there was a best way to do things, as opposed to a range of different ways that will produce a range of different outcomes. And we see that the attitude, the relationship we have, I think, to, to, to knowledge is that it somehow gives us power, it gives us control, and therefore security. And this is something we seem to be very interested in. We'd really like to know what's going to happen, wouldn't we? Who wouldn't like to know what's going to happen? Because then I'd be able to prepare for it, wouldn't we? And so we kind of, we often are just projecting a little bit in front of ourselves a sense of what's about to happen and kind of looking to see if that's so. Looking to see, or sometimes that's a bit further. Because somehow that activity of attempting to know what is coming towards us before it gets here gives us some sense of safety. Or so it appears. And yet, at the very same time, that process of trying to know something that we don't actually know, and then we can't actually know, which is what's happening, what's going to happen next. We can't know it. That process of trying to know it, while in one level it seems to promise some degree of security, control or power, the reality is that the underlying effect of that process is that we feel more and more anxiety and fear and stress and pressure. And it's actually so much what, you know, it's interesting in our culture, we know so much more about everything that we ever did. The news will report to us all the things that are going on everywhere. We can find it out in detail. We can watch pictures, eyewitness accounts, taken on people's phones. You know, it's all there within moments of anything happening. And do we feel more relaxed? Do we feel safer? It seems to me that by and large, as a, as a whole, there's a lot more fear. There's a lot more worry. It's not something that brings a reduction in anxiety. That tendency to move into the future, the tendency to want to know what's going to happen, actually leaves us in a place of distress. And there's something we can learn from the, the way of the natural world, in which really it's human beings with our both remarkable and yet challenging capacity for thinking about the future and remembering the past, that it's not like that for much of life, for other creatures. And there's a beautiful poem by Wendell Berry. He speaks to this. He says, it's entitled, The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world comes upon me, and I awake at the slightest sound, in fear of what my life and what my children's lives may be, I go down to where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and where the great heron feeds. I come into the presence of still water and feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. For a while I rest in the grace of the world and am free. And I find something very touching that speaks to me in the sense of that, that line of the peace of wild things, the 
the grace of creatures who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. And we just see how that kind of looking forward to try and make it okay and try and construct the outcome that we hoped for inevitably brings us into contact with the reality that it's not in our control, we can't guarantee the hope for outcome, and we can imagine some very unhoped for outcomes. And somehow that's what seems to stick in our mind when we get involved in that process. And part of that is what drives our engagement, drives the activity and the entanglement of our minds. And there's a hope for some resolution with regard to the future, but the effect is not that. The truth of the effect is, in fact, an entanglement. And this is part of what we encounter. This is part of what we see and experience as we engage in meditation practice. And that's part of what it's designed to show us. It's important that we get to see this. And so we can start to perhaps reflect on or consider how it is that we become entangled in this way. And one of the fundamental elements of that is the way we operate from a point of view that gives some absolute reality to the concept of time. It's a construct. It's an idea. It's something that we agree upon to organize ourselves in some degree of relative coordination and it's a useful one because of course otherwise we couldn't have all turned up for the start of the retreat and you know if we didn't have some time kind of organization you know some people would just be walking in now or maybe I'd have just finished and you'd have got here and would have missed it you know or who knows what you know so it's not to say it doesn't have a place but the sense of time creates an orientation towards what is not here and now towards the past, towards the future, that creates a sense of reality as if they were more real than the present. That's, in a way, what we're saying. We, we might know that's not true. We might be aware that, no, it's not really like that. This is what's really here. But if we look at the time our mind is, and our attention is invested in past and future, we see, oh, we're actually saying and acting as if this is what's most important and most real. Because we're actually living in that realm, or appearing to try to do so, so much of the time. And living in this way is just fundamentally unsatisfying. There's something about it that doesn't quite meet what it is that we love, that we long for, that we wish for. Because there's, it's like trying to live you know, on food that isn't actually food, it's pictures of food or descriptions of food. But we notice that, you know, we can talk about the nicest meal we ever had in our life. Just imagine it, remember, the most delicious, nourishing, wonderful meal of your life. Whenever that was, maybe it was at lunchtime, it was pretty good. Um, but, you know, it might have been some time before then, but all of that will not ever give us nourishment. We know that. It won't fill our belly. We know that. But yet somehow... We can dwell upon it, perhaps in the hope that we can get it again. We can have it some more. And so the sense of time is what entangles us with the experiences. 
And it's also what creates the sense of struggle so much of the time. You know, difficult experiences arise. And yeah, they're difficult. But what's really difficult is the sense of how long I'm going to have to deal with this, how long it's going to go on for. Have you noticed that? That actually I could be sitting here, maybe my knee hurts, or maybe I'm feeling some kind of grief, or maybe I'm just there's some just sort of kind of restlessness happening. And the experience itself is unpleasant. But the thing that's really hard is, well, how long do I have to endure this? How long will it go on for? What if it keeps going all day? I can't do this all retreat. I'm going to, you know. And yet the funny thing is that in this moment, we're already doing it. It's when we're surviving it. And yet somehow we imagine that if it continues, it will annihilate or overwhelm us. And it's to do with the way we think in time. And from time, you know, we have the word duration. And from duration, endurance. And then we're suffering and we're struggling and we're surviving. And life becomes a process of surviving in our mind. From our, that point of view, we're surviving because we're trying to somehow fulfill some idea of duration of how long this life we would like it to continue for. When in fact we don't know for how long it will continue. And we can't know. Likewise, when we try and take hold of something, the idea that we can keep hold of something, it's, it's based in time. When we resist something, it's projecting in time an experience that we don't want to have. And if we come into the present moment, if we put down, or if we can allow ourselves to just soften around that whole sense of duration of time and see that it's not really so substantial. What we find, or if we start to contemplate in that way, what we find is that time and that sense of progress or regress, that sense of duration and going somewhere, is very fundamental to the sense we have of who we are or who we believe ourselves to be. It's fundamental to the activity that most of our life gets spent on, which is somehow trying to get somewhere or to become someone different or other than as we are. And we see how we try and, you know, measure our practice. You know, has anyone in this room looked around at everybody else and thought, hmm, they're doing really well. God, I wish I could do it like that. So many times one hears the story. Oh, you know, everybody else seems to be all right. I don't quite know how to do it. And yet we kind of, we create the sense that other people are good at it and we're not. Or, of course, occasionally, not as often, certainly not in this culture, we might have the sense of, you know, oh, well, I'm really good at it. Look at them, they're all falling all over the place, you know. That's a bit more taboo, isn't it? That's not allowed. We're not really supposed to have those kinds of thoughts. But sometimes we might. And we see this way we compare ourselves. We try and locate ourselves. And, of course, if we've said, I'm doing really great, then, of course, we've got to keep ourselves there. We've got to keep measuring ourselves. And one of the primary things we measure against is, am I doing better in time? You know. So the last sitting was good, but what about the next sitting? We start to wonder, will it be good too? Will I still be good? Because if I have a bad sitting, then probably I'm now a bad meditator. If I'm a bad meditator, then gosh, I've failed, wasted all this time. Days I've been here and still I can't do it. Huh? And we see our minds are spinning around such stories.
There's something about this way we construct the sense of who we are based in time, based in accumulating, in measuring, in comparing experiences. Now, there's something in that process which makes sense, which we could usefully understand as born of our history as human beings, as a species. Because part of what we're doing in that kind of trying to get, establish a sense of who we are in a, in a measurable way or affirmable, confirmable way, is that there's a way in which we're trying to make sure that we're okay and that we're going to be seen as okay and known as okay amongst others around us. And there's some kind of way we're going to measure that, some way we're going to compare ourselves to make sure we are hopefully towards the top end and not towards the bottom end of whatever is valued. So if here, you know, being quiet and mindful is valued, then we want to be good at that. We don't want to be bad at that. We don't want to be the bottom of the class at being mindful and, you know, or, or with the yoga and, you know, again, with the, the having the eyes closed, it takes out that opportunity to look and see, well, how much is everyone else doing? You know, how far are they going? What does it look like there? But we still might be curious and wanting to know. And part of that sense is that it's really important for us to not be rejected. No? It's really important for us. Emotionally, of course, it's really painful if we feel that we aren't doing very well or if others don't think very much of us. And that emotionality is you know, relevant and something to be respectful and sensitive to. But more fundamentally, the, the pressure we put ourselves under to try and be okay, to try and be good, in a certain way, what it's all about is trying to make sure that in our community, whether it be our family, our friends, our workplace, our peer group, our, our society, we don't become isolated and rejected. Because not only is that emotionally painful, distressing and possibly embarrassing, if it should happen to us, but actually not that long ago in human history, one human being by themselves was just food for some other hungry creature. That's basically the only thing that happened to a human being on their own. Human beings as a tribe, we were strong, powerful, smart. But we weren't particularly tough and you no know, big teeth or long claws or tough scales or anything like that. Can't run that fast, you know. Kind of dinner for hungry other creatures. So there's at a survival level, there's a very strong mechanism that's trying to make sure that we're doing okay, that's trying to make sure that everyone is going to think I'm doing okay and like me or appreciate me, therefore not judge me or reject me. Huh? So because of that, important to be really compassionate with ourselves, to be really kind, where we find ourselves trying to do it well, trying to be good, trying to succeed, trying to look okay, trying to go to the top of the class or win the, you know, the best meditator of the year competition. Huh? Or best yoga practitioner of the year. I know. The sense we have of how we're doing. How many times have we come to the conclusion, I'm doing well, only to a little while later come to the conclusion, I'm not doing so well? Or equally, come to the conclusion, I'm not doing so well, and then later on, oh, actually, maybe I'm doing okay. We see how it changes. That measuring and comparing keeps changing. And there's a lovely story of um, uh, 
about uh, one of the teachers, one of the senior teachers, the elders of our tradition, Jack Cornfield, um, who was teaching a retreat in uh, in California, some quite some years ago now. And a few days into the retreat, maybe three, four, as we are here, one of the staff members of the retreat asked Jack about his friend who was practicing and said, "Jack, how's my friend doing?" And Jack looked at him and said, "Oh, your friend, he's doing really well." Pleased to hear that the uh, staff member asked about another person. Then, oh, yeah, she's doing very well. Another staff member overhearing the conversation asked about their friend. Jack's response: That person, yeah, they're doing very well too. And the first staff member hearing this and just reflecting said, "Jack, Jack, what do you mean by doing very well?" And Jack's response was: "They're still here." <laughs> So if you've been wondering how you're doing, there's the answer. <laughs> to be here. To be here. Really here. Means to start to let go of the way we rely on a sense of success and failure, progress and regress, to establish the sense of who I am, and always in comparison to something else or to someone else. To start to let go of the sense of past and future and the stories we tell ourselves, the ideas we hold in our mind, that give us some sense of who I am, who I was, who I will be. Gives something we can fix onto or hold onto that offers the some apparent though not actual, security in the midst of a life that is fluid. In the present moment, when we step out of that conceiving of time and that measuring of self and comparing of self and evaluating <laughs> of ourselves or equally at doing the same to others, what's here is something unfixed, undefinable, something that we can't really easily locate who I am in the midst of this. And that can be a little bit scary. That can be kind of unsettling. And that's part of why we find it not so easy to allow the activity of the mind to become quiet. To allow it to begin to settle. It takes time. It takes a degree of trust and courage, in fact. So, in this process, we can contemplate, perhaps, to what degree we might be willing to let ourselves rest in somewhere a little less fixed, a little less stable, a little less predictable, we could say. Because this is the nature of what it means to be really present, to be really open. Our intellectual mind, our thinking function, and the sense of me connected with that tends to be very uneasy about not knowing. And we'd kind of almost rather have certainty 
than freedom, than truth. It's a trade-off we make. The philosopher Voltaire, he once observed, he said, Uncertainty is indeed an uncomfortable condition. But certainty? Certainty is ridiculous. So what, what happens for us if we just allow ourselves to contemplate that maybe some of the things we believed or imagined we've known about life are not quite as we have imagined them to be. It doesn't mean we have to reject what we know or believe we know, but just start to be a little bit less sure about all of that. Do we really know where we came from? What was before this existence, if anything? Do we really know to where we go and what is beyond this life, if anything? We don't. We don't. We can't be sure that there is something after we die. Certainly I can't. But nor can I be certain that there isn't, if I'm honest with myself. And the idea that I... I'm sure there might be something beyond life, beyond death, or the certainty that there is nothing. Both of them could be used as some kind of way to make myself feel better. But there's something very alive about just turning towards or allowing oneself to encounter that unknownness. It's, it's full of possibility, and it brings a real sense of interest. A real sense of, okay, wow, what's going on here? And um, I was when just reflecting on this on this theme earlier. I was remembering how I met one of my um, first and very beloved teachers in India, and I attended a retreat. The first time I sat, first retreat I sat, and. Um, thought, wow, this is amazing, this is great, though I had absolutely no idea what the heck had been happening. So if you've been feeling that way at all, it's your first retreat, don't worry. It, you know, it, it keeps going from there, it seems. Um, but what I did get left with was a sense of, I want to do some more of this. So there was a few names and places listed at the retreat, which took place in Budgaya in North India, which is the, um, the village near the tree, which is the place where the, the Buddha was awakened. The Buddha came to his remarkable understanding um, two and a half thousand years ago. And Anyway, I travelled from there to, to Calcutta, which is where my grandmother um, lived, who I'd never met before, and I wanted to meet her since um, that was one whole part of my family I had very little sort of knowledge of. And uh, in Calcutta there was this uh, teacher that was listed that I thought, I'll go and see if I can find this teacher. Um, his name was Manindra. And I went to the place of his address, and they said, oh, Manindra, he's not here. So I said, when's he coming back? I said, we don't know, he doesn't tell us. So, okay, gave up on that idea. And there was another retreat happening in, in Calcutta, so I went to that retreat. And at the retreat, there was this character sitting there um, who wasn't the teacher, who but was obviously a little bit different than the rest of the students because he was wearing all of white, and um, he didn't say anything or do anything apart from sit there for the whole time. And at the end of the retreat, he came up, and he sort of pointed, handed me, the, or started to hand me this card and said, come and see me. 
And I, my first thought, if I'm honest, was, why do I want to come and see you? <laughs> really? Then I looked at the card, it said, Manindra. <laughs> and I thought, oh, wow, how did that happen? Just uh, coincidence, perhaps? There's only, you know, how many hundred million people in India? Um, quite a few, anyway. And moments like that can quite sometimes just open up a sense of something mysterious going on in life that we can't explain so easily. Interestingly, with, uh, with Manindra, um, I spent some time with him and uh, then I ended up back in, back in the West. And when I went back to India the next year, um, again I wanted to find him, went to Calcutta. And I went to where he lives and asked, is he here? And they said, no. I said, do you know when he's coming back? They said, no, he doesn't tell us. He, he never told anyone where he was going, it seemed, or very rarely. Um, so I left and I went and sat down in a cafe um, some several miles away from where he, he normally lives. And I was just probably having a cup of tea, I don't remember. But I caught the eye of someone. Someone caught my eye on the other end of the cafe. And we just smiled. We started talking. And then it seemed, it suddenly turned out that he was looking for a particular teacher in another town, in Lucknow in fact, another, another town. And this teacher was particularly hard to find, but it just so happened that someone had given me this person's address and said, you should go see this guy. I didn't know who it was, didn't know the name, but I had the address for this teacher. And this was the teacher this other person was trying to find. And I thought, well, okay, here it is. And what was amazing was he said, I've just come from the Mahabodhi Center, which Mahabodhi Temple, which is where Manindra stays when he's in Calcutta. He said, Manindra's there. He just arrived. He's leaving tomorrow morning at six o'clock. And I thought, what? Again, somehow the piece of information I was looking for came to me. And I went straight away to there. And um Manindra was, you know, very uh, warm as he was and he said, Come, we're going to you know, come on. And he wanted me to just come straight with him as if I could do that. And I thought, no, no, I actually have to go home and get my, th well, back to the hotel, get my bag, and then I'll come in the morning and followed him. And it was a really precious time for me with that teacher that followed. And when I stop and think about how did that happen? How did that happen? You know, how did I get there to be able to find him in that very small window? Something remarkable. And these remarkable things actually are happening all the time. Very easily we tend to think, oh, coincidence. or oh, As if coincidence explains it. You know the word coincidence? What it means is, we don't have a clue how that happened. But it did. Yeah? And actually just not explain it with the word coincidence, but say, oh, oh, I don't know how that happened. But wow, that was fortunate. That was amazing. And what it brings is this quality of investigation, of inquiry, of interest that the Buddha spoke of as being the factor or the quality of mind that leads to awakening, the factor which is closest to that process, that most directly or most proximate to the human potential for awakening is that quality of inquiry, of investigation, of curiosity. And it 
isn't something we can always talk ourselves into, but it comes, I think, very naturally when we start to have the honesty and the humility and the respect to acknowledge how much we don't really know. We don't know if we'll be here tomorrow. We don't. Every day, people like you and like me who assumed they would be here tomorrow aren't here anymore when tomorrow turns up. It happens every day. Now, I'm hoping that's not going to be the case for any of us here. At least not tonight. At some point in time, it probably will. Well, it will be. Not even probably. At some point in time, <laughs> that will be so. But are we willing to let ourselves take this time in this space as something open, as something unknown, as something that we can't necessarily predict what it will be before we get there. The way we come with our thinking and our minds is the way it's almost like we drag that which is familiar to us into the present moment. And we, that's what we surround ourselves with, the mind, the thinking, the stories, the history, the future. At one level, we'd like to let it go. But at another level, it's not easy because it's kind of scary for us, it seems. The unknown. We've talked about this. And so it requires a degree of trust. A willingness to say, I'm willing. I'm able and I'm going to just step in to what's here and see what happens. See what happens. There's a story of a man who was walking along a cliff and momentarily being distracted by something um, steps too close to the edge which crumbles and he falls and he's falling down this precipice and halfway down he grabs hold of a branch of a tree sticking out gripping hold of it very tightly and it's 50, 50 metres above him to the top and 50 metres below to a, a sharp rocks on the edge of a roaring river and he's, oh my gosh, this is not a good situation and despite having been a lifelong atheist suddenly it occurs to him that he needs help and he says, God if you're out there and you help me, I'll believe in you. And this loud rumbling voice comes back. That's what they all say. <laughs> he almost lets go of the branch. He's so surprised, but he doesn't. He says, oh, no, no, I believe, God. I can feel, I can feel faith deep in me. I can feel, I believe in you. I believe in you. Save me. Hmm, said the rumbling voice. I've heard that before. But okay. I will save you. Oh, thank you, thank you. Oh, my faith. I will, I will spread the words. I will spread the, the, the truth of your existence through all the planet. Hmm. I said I would save you. You trust me. You have faith. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. I will save you. Let go of the branch. Let go of the branch? Do you think I'm crazy? And we see how we'd like to have some reassurance of what's going to happen before we let go. <laughs> don't we? 
We want to know what's going to happen before we let go. But we can't. Because it hasn't happened yet. What is it to let go? Here. To trust that we have the capacity, we have the courage. To allow ourselves to drop more deeply in to this life, to this moment, as it is and as we are. Joseph Goldstein, one of the, uh, again, another one of the elders of our tradition and someone who I feel very fortunate to know both as a, a teacher and a friend, he, he's uh, sometimes observed in this context, he said, letting go, it's kind of like jumping out of a parachute. Sorry, jumping out of a plane, going to a parachute jump. Jumping out of a plane and then realising you've forgotten to put on your parachute. You have this moment of, <gasps> he says, and then you realize that there's no ground. That moment of letting go is kind of scary. But actually there's no ground. We're already floating in that sense. We're already resting in that sense in life. And all our attempt to hold ourselves up and together isn't actually what's doing that. That's actually what's causing it to be kind of tight and painful. So allowing ourselves to just contemplate that maybe it's not so dangerous. Maybe it's not so difficult as something in us might imagine. And to see where that leaves us. To see what we find when we come <laughs> naked, as it were, into contact with our life moment by moment. The vastness of this experience of being here. The beauty, the stillness of this life and the fullness Equally, it's all here. It's always here. There isn't somewhere else. There isn't some other time or place. There never has been, there never will be. There's only this. Zen monk, Ryokan, 
He says, Do you want to know what's been in my heart since before the beginning of time? Just this. Just this. So let's sit quietly for a few moments together. So may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we come to trust in the, in the truth of not knowing. And may we come to rest in the vastness of life that is ungraspable and yet imminent. for our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.